This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I want to welcome Wharton finance professor Richard Herring to Knowledge at Wharton today to discuss uh, the recently completed European bank stress tests. And uh, that was done by the European Central Bank on the Eurozone's 130 largest banks. Um, Dick, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, the background behind these tests and what they might mean. It's an interesting lineage. Uh, and to see the inspiration for it all, you really need to turn back to 2009 in the United States. Uh, most people now mark that as the turning point in our crisis, where we regained confidence in banks. Uh, and it was a similar exercise. The bank regulators devised a stress test with three scenarios and insisted that banks show that they could remain adequately capitalized, even under the worst scenario. Uh, the interesting thing about our experiment is that they, they forced 19 banks to undergo the experiment, and 10 of them failed. Ordinarily, you'd think that was not a good outcome. But it was accompanied with a SCAP program. So immediately, they were forced to uh, take funds from SCAP to recapitalize, which they repaid over time. SCAP being just? SCAP being the Supervised Capital Adequacy Program, okay. and TARP being the uh, Troubled Asset Relief Program, uh, which was this amount of money. The Europeans tried it, seeing that it really did work in the United States. And it's, I think it worked only because we had that very deep government pocket backing it up. Um, and the problem with Europe at the first time they tried it, of course, is that they were they're really a, a group of independent states that sort of each have national champion banks. And most of the supervisors do not want to say anything harsh about their banks. So they did a, a stress test, but it wasn't really very stressful. And a few days after it completed, Ireland went under. Um, the Irish banks went under. The state of Ireland tried to bail them out. It went under and set off the debt crisis. So that's, that's called egg on your face, I think. Absolutely. Uh, and the second time they tried it, it wasn't a lot more convincing because uh, there again you had a major player that, that succumbed within a, a month or so. Um, this time the stakes were much higher because the EU has decided to have a single banking authority. They really are trying to integrate regulation and supervision of the entire banking system in the euro area. And the European Central Bank is going to take it on as a subsidiary. Um, this has been you know, years in the negotiation. Um, but the debate, which was mainly the Germans against everybody else, was what do we do with the losses that are already in the system? And they said, looking ahead, we can anticipate that we would have some sort of mutual uh, obligation to support the system going forward, but we do not want to be on the hook for legacy losses. That was what this was designed to do. So this is uh, uh, more of a, of a true exam than a little minor quiz, which is, seems uh, to be what they had in the past? It, it's... There, you know, we still don't know for sure because only time will tell, but there, there's every reason to believe it was much more serious. Um, they were very much aware, first of all, the odds are higher because um, after this, the European Central Bank owns the problem. 
So if you accept a dodgy bank from one of the nation states, there are costs to everybody in the rest of Europe. Secondly, they were aware of the tendency of supervisors to perhaps be a little bit gentle with their own supervisees. And so they designed examination teams that included a national supervisor, but also included uh, a supervisor from another country and a supervisor that was hired by this European Central Bank. So you had essentially three different perspectives uh, and a much greater chance that you were going to actually get it right. Does this mean then, uh, you say only time will tell, but let's, let me ask this. Well, why don't we go back to the issue of how stressful it was? Because okay. <laughs> that's an interesting parallel with the United States. Um, one of the surprising things about the United States was when they finally got around to announcing the results of the stress test, we were already in a more stressful <laughs> macro situation than the, the stress scenario. So uh, that too makes it a bit puzzling that it worked. Uh, in the European case, people have have been concerned that it didn't um, consider what many people worry about in looking ahead at Europe, such as a deflationary impact. Um, so there are always issues about that, but there are also technical issues about the way in which stress was measured. They looked to a definition of capital uh, to risk-weighted assets that covered up at least two pretty serious problems. One, they used a definition of capital that included two categories of accounting terms that are no longer accepted internationally. One is they uh, permitted banks to count deferred tax assets. That's fine if you're going to make profits in the future, but if you're a bank that is headed for resolution, that's not going to be worth anything. Um, and they also um, permitted banks to uh, count goodwill. Uh, and you can ramp up goodwill however you like by simply overpaying. The accountants make the charitable uh, assumption that you knew what you were doing. It's the ultimate asterisk, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And then the denominator is fudged too because they maintain the polite fiction that all government debt is riskless, that it will be repaid in full. And one of the fundamental problems in Europe is that European banks tend to hold large amounts of sovereign debt. And uh, although it's diminished a lot since the crisis began, there were large amounts of cross-border debt. If you assume the euro is going to work and that everybody will be repaid, there was a real tendency to put the higher interest rate stuff that was in riskier countries on your books. One of the things you mentioned uh, I, th I thought was interesting in that you said they, they weren't taking into account uh, possible deflation in Europe, which is, has been a threat since the crisis, but recently has been seen as an even greater threat as uh, uh, inflation seems to be dropping e even more, I believe. Um, so uh, is this a, a case of generals fighting the last war, looking at, well, we know that we think that these stress tests would have prevented um, catastrophic failures if it was the same kind of crisis we had in 2008, but of course the next crisis is likely to be different. I think I'd put it a little differently. I think they were trying to remove one part of what they viewed as deflationary pressures. And the concern had been that European banks were so weakly capitalized that they really couldn't provide loans that would help fuel recovery in Europe. Uh, now, it's well to remember that in Europe, this is a much more serious problem than it would be in the United States. Not that our banks aren't important, but they account for about 20 to 30% of, of lending. And in Europe, it's more like 70 plus. 
So having a banking sector that is not able to um, supply credit to the, the private sector means that you're really not going to have robust growth. So part of the idea behind these tests was to prove to everyone and to remove from sort of the public debate it's a problem that our banks are too weak. It's now pretty clearly, if you believe the test results, a problem that demand is much too weak, and they're going to have to focus on that. That's really interesting because that's uh, um, that's a big change. Then uh, you know, so so it's not a lack of confidence in the bank that's keeping the European economy uh, so far below its potential for the last five or six years. It's, we hope that's true. There we were think, some indications uh-huh. uh, in terms of the rates that banks paid right after the test that there was at least some positive movement and confidence in European banks. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the same problem we faced in the United States. Um, why is it we don't see more bank lending? Uh, is it because banks uh, are trying to delever and can't really, uh, don't want to make loans? Uh, if you ask banks, they say they've never been more liquid. They're always looking for opportunities. Um, or is it because there's not as much demand? That's what banks say. But when you talk to entrepreneurs and people are looking for mortgages, they say, this is really tough to get. So it, it, it's hard to measure. Um, that's interesting. You would think that there would be some way to know what was really going on there. But uh, so, so the evidence is just conflicting. Is that it? Yeah. It's, uh, we haven't really been very good at sorting out um, the effects of sort of rationing of credit. Well, we know that rationing takes place. But whether um, we're not seeing more robust demand because the demand isn't there from entrepreneurs and investors, um, possibly because they don't see much in the way of attractive opportunities and they themselves are worried about being overleveraged, or because banks um, just don't feel strong enough to lend. They may have, um, as in the case of Europe probably two years ago, weak assets they haven't revealed yet, and so they want to try to build up earnings to be able to um, somehow absorb the losses before they have to make them public. And it's, you know, it's, it's complicated. So it's been a week now, uh, and um, I mean, I guess one could say that the markets seem to have accepted uh, the verdict of the ECB in these stress tests, as you say, at least for now, and time will tell about all the rest of it. But they didn't react in a way that said, oh, these these tests were just uh, a fiction. No, they didn't. And that in itself was a triumph, because this was a real, really difficult test for the the new European Banking Authority. This was essentially how you were going to qualify banks to enter the new system. And if it had been a complete softball uh, sort of uh, test, and they'd passed everybody, as some Europeans thought they would because they argued they'd all been raising capital for a while, I think it would have had no credibility. We've sort of seen that, that movie before, and we know it ends badly. On the other hand, they were in a position where if they actually were to fail one of the very large banks, it isn't clear they had the mechanism in place to resolve it because there really isn't that much funding at the European level. And depending on which state it is, they may or may not have enough funding to do it. So that's interesting. So this was the ultimate curved test in a way. They wanted to have some failures. I think they looked The at largest the- was the oldest bank in the world, Monte de, right. de Pesci de Siena. And uh, I think their stock dropped... 20%, I think. So. 20%? Uh, yeah. uh, okay. Um, from a not very high level, I would add. It's from an already dis- slightly distressed level. Um, one of the numbers that was really buried uh, in the report, but which 
a couple of analysts did pluck out, and, and, and I, I noticed also, was this uh, something called the comprehensive assessment of the stock of bad loans. They actually call it non-performing exposures. We, com we call it non-performing loans in the U.S. But basically, it's, it's bad loans, loans that have a, a high chance of never being paid back. And, you know, in that number, there's all kinds that are more or less likely to be paid back, I guess. Um, that number was really big. And uh, in dollar terms, it was uh, over a trillion dollars. And in fact, as they went through the stress tests, they uncovered something like 138 billion more in these uh, non-performing or bad loans than, than the, the authorities did, that is, than they thought was was going to be there. And, um, and it's a big number. It is actually uh, 9% of uh, the Eurozone's GDP. So it's, it's pretty big. O on the other hand, um, the, the authorities said that the uh, bank's capital shortfall was only about $25 billion. So I just wanted to f find some way of reconciling <coughs> that big gap. So you've got all these potentially bad loans, but they're telling the banks, oh, you've only got to increase your, your, uh, you know, your, your share of money that you're holding on to to account for that by $25 billion. Well, it, it's a little more complicated than that because the normal process, and, and by the way, it's typical of any bank examination process that examiners will find assets on the book that they think are not properly valued. And they will almost never say something is undervalued. So almost always one of the results is, look, you've got this many more assets that we think are dubious. And in order to um, get to a, a, a safe and sound position, we want you to accumulate more reserves. And that means provisions out of current income so that if these assets should go bad, it won't affect your income or capital. Uh, so you're sort of anticipating the worst. Now, these are um, forward-looking, and that's one of the f uh, fascinating features of the stress test. It's a real sea change in the whole attitude toward bank supervision. Um, before the crisis, virtually all bank supervision was sort of looking at what we see in today's figures, which is kind of like looking at the future with a rearview mirror. These really try consciously to look ahead uh, by forecasting what your position will be under a variety of positions. So um, the, the notion behind these assets would be that these assets might well not be paid in full. Um, the number is less than people thought it would be. So in, in that sense, uh, it was a pleasant surprise. People thought it would be even worse. Um, but in fact, you, depending on the, the definition they've used, and I haven't, I haven't looked at the document carefully enough to know, but. Typically, you'll start classifying loans or assets according to how much past due they are. And um, it, typically, in the U.S., you'll use a 90-day period. And uh, if they remain not paid for longer than that, then you are supposed to allocate more and more to it so that uh, unless it happens just abruptly, by the time you finally have to declare a loss, you will have reserved enough to, to be able to absorb it. Okay. Um, those were all my questions. Is there anything else we should be covering on this that would be particularly important for viewers? Well, it all sounds like a within-the-EU kind of issue that is more than a little technical, but we actually do have a lot riding on it. Uh, if the European banking system doesn't regain health, not only is it a problem for our financial system, but it's a huge problem for the European economy. And they haven't been a significant source of aggregate demand in the world, 
Um, we could hope that they would finally get there, not only for their sake, but for everybody else's as well. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.